The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. As ever on a Thursday, John Gibbons has joined us for our weekly environment spot. But if you were listening earlier, you would have heard Andy O'Donoghue talking about the vengeance, this super expensive new SUV emerging from the United States. John wanted to talk about it as well. But before we hear from him, let's hear some of the TikTok video being used to promote the vengeance. Hey, mamas, let's talk about the memorable features on the Resvani Vengeance. I'm body armored, and so is this vehicle. For even more protection, you have explosive underbody shielding, bulletproof glass, electrified door handles, military-grade run flat tires, and a ram steel bumper. If anyone's following you, you have blinding lights in the front and the back, or a smoke screen. Plus my favorite, pepper spray. If you're picking your kids up from the mall, let them know you're there with strobe lights and your intercom. Hey, mommy, it's your mommy. Your kids will love that it was styled by a video game designer. Is this an EV, John, is it? Uh, good evening, Matt. Yes. Uh, well, no, actually, it's a V. Well, you have a choice of engines. I think it starts at about V6 and goes up to uh, V10. So, no, this is definitely one for the petrol heads. And for, it's the type of vehicle, actually, that would be absolutely perfect if they were sending it out to Ukraine. Because effectively, what we're looking at here, what we're talking about here, is a military-grade vehicle. And I suppose the sociologists are having a field day with this because it basically, it's talking really and it's addressing the breakdown of social cohesion in the US, where people are effectively uh, prepared to spend half a million dollars to drive their family around in an armoured car in the belief that somehow or other they're securing their little darlings. One of the little vignettes that I, that that. I found most entertaining out of this is a comment that I came across from the the, the uh, fire service people. They said, you know, if one of these things flips and we come along with our cutters to cut you out, we won't get you out. You'll burn in that thing because all that armour plating and stuff, our equipment is not designed to rescue people from them. So this thing could effectively become a $500,000 coffin. I wonder who'll do the first school run in South County Dublin with one of them. Yeah, I've got a feeling. I mean, to be honest, some of, some of our our, our uh, trucks here are kind of, I mean, they haven't quite got to armour plate yet. And there is another question that said, unless you're an actual drug dealer, why exactly you want armour plate? But I, I do think it is sort of, I don't know, it's almost like parody catching up with real life. I, I remember from years ago, The Simpsons had a, had a song about a, a vehicle, they called it the Canyonero. And it said, it's the number one choice in off-road sports. Unexplained fires are a matter for the courts. It was a, basically a joke about this deer whacking uh, kind of road killing monstrosity and here we are and here we find it but on a more serious note Matt I think what's really important to say is the rise of these uh, giant road vehicles is not without consequence we've seen for example in the US in the last decade pedestrian and cyclist deaths have increased by 54% in the last 10 years and what they find is that SUVs are two to three times more dangerous to pedestrians cyclists and other vulnerable road users now this is simple physics when you take mass times velocity you get impact so even at the kind of speeds for example that one in two people are are able to survive a, a, an impact with a normal car we have 100% fatality 
for the same people being hit by SUVs. It's not just about the weight. It's also about the fact that these are very, very high vehicles, which means instead of being bounced over the bonnet, have your legs broken, but your torso survives. Effectively, these cars hit you in the torso and then run you under the car. So your survival rate, if you if you're unlucky enough to be run over by an SUV, your survival rate or your kid's survival rate from it is extremely low. And the other point, which I think, again, is highly relevant to this, is that if SUVs globally were a country, if you can put it that way, they would be the world's seventh largest emitting country in the world. And what we've seen is that the rise of SUVs, particularly in the last decade, has been the second largest cause of the global increase in carbon emissions. It is incredible. At a time when we've got EVs and plug-ins and whatever you're having yourself, all the gains, Matt, from all of that technology has been wiped out by the simple fact that car manufacturers have been allowed to get away with selling us two and a half ton trucks. Let's move on to the doomsday clock. Yeah, for life relief. Yeah, well, it's the perfect segue because if you find yourself the need to drive around in an in an armored vehicle, maybe it's because you've just read report from the bulletin of the uh, atomic scientists. Now, for context in this, uh, the doomsday clock. This is not a new idea. This was actually established in 1947. That was two years after the detonation of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombs back in 1945. So the the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists basically decided to set up a system of global monitoring of risk, and they call it the Doomsday Clock. So basically, this thing moves backwards and forwards every year uh, in in tracking, if you like, the likelihood of man-made global disaster. So it's something, and I suppose it is worth considering, Matt, that it's only really since 1945 that humans have had the ability to actually become extinct by their own hand. Up until then, it would have required an asteroid or something. But since 1945, it is possible uh, through, obviously through nuclear war, for humans to become extinct. And of course, in more recent times, what we found, and this features very strongly with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, is that climate change and climate breakdown is the other key thing that they're tracking. And these, these if you like, the two, the two things together both nuclear risk and uh, climate breakdown are the two sort of factors that has pushed the, their reading. Now, for context, what they've said in, in the 2023 uh, doomsday clock is that we're now 90 seconds. That's a minute and a half from, mid- to, from midnight. Now, that is the closest the clock has ever been to midnight in the 76 years in which the clock has been operating. So this goes takes us right through the Cold War. It takes us through the Bay of Pigs. It takes us through the, the Berlin Wall. Think of all the major flashpoints over the last three quarters of a century. And none of them have taken us as close to midnight as the combination, the lethal combination of accelerating climate breakdown. And laid on top of that, we have... Uh, an emergency, uh, a nuclear emergency, which, of course, has been heightened, dramatically heightened by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And they made the point as well that with this, uh, that essentially Russia's continued thinly veiled threats to use nuclear weapons, this type of talk can never be dismissed. And this is the point the scientists make, that when people start talking about using weapons, there's, it greatly increases the likelihood of, and also, Matt, it increases the likelihood of nuclear proliferation. Back in '94, uh, Ukraine was persuaded by a combination of Russia, the US and Britain to sign away its own nuclear arsenal in exchange for, for guarantees that the, 
that they would have security of their own borders. Now, what we've seen is any country now looking at what's happened to Ukraine would say, actually, the safest thing you can do in the world at the moment is to actually have nuclear weapons. And this is reflected again in, as I say, a uniquely dangerous moment in, in, if you like, in modern history that has been tracked by the doomsday clock. Okay, let's move on. Something I brought up with Samantha McCorkin in business the other evening, and I mentioned you probably have some opinions on it. ESB Networks to unveil a 10 billion euro plan for a net zero future. What's in this? What do you make of it? Yeah, well, first of all, I suppose uh, 10 billion sounds like a lot. But when you break it down, really, we're looking at roughly a billion a year spend. And for an organisation like ESB, it's big, but it's within the, the if you like, the element of, of a business of that size. So to use their own jargon, they're saying it will enable electricity customers to adopt new technologies, product services, etc., etc. Now, what this means, first of all, is that we have got to figure out using our existing and expanded electrical network, how to cope with huge amounts of new renewable energy. What we're looking at here are 9 gigawatts of onshore wind, 8 gigawatts of solar PV. And that's incredible, Matt, when you consider that today we're practically at 0 gigawatts. So they're planning to bring 8 gigawatts of of solar PV on. Five gigawatts of offshore, all of which, almost all of which will be brand new, uh, and another two gigawatts of offshore for green hydrogen. So, essentially, we've got to figure out a way to manage our grid that is capable of doing that. So, the first thing that you need to do with that is to have a smart grid. Now, a smart grid means, and I'll give you a very simple example, we have to add huge amounts of electric vehicles and heat pumps to our grid. Now, you might say, well, that's a huge drain on the grid, but it doesn't have to be like that. Let's say that I've plugged in my electric vehicle and I've charged it during the day from from my solar panels. Now, I can have an arrangement with a smart grid that says that at between 5 and 7 p.m., when there's a when there's an extra strain on the national grid, I can sell back my additional electricity that is stored in my car's battery and release that back to the grid. Now, that technology exists, but it hasn't yet been implemented. Now, that's a, the phrase they use for it is called a prosumer, where you, as an energy person, you're a producer of energy, but you're also a consumer. At the moment, it's all one-way traffic. We've, we have, a, if you like, a big centralised grid. And by by the way, we're pretty good in Ireland at electricity management. We, in fact, it's, we're, we export our expertise to many parts of the world. So it's fantastic that we're finally hooking up our expertise and attaching it to, to renewable energy. One final thing, and this isn't particularly positive, because tell us about this UK study which suggests insulation to a house provides only a short-term fall in energy consumption, maybe for the first four years. Yeah, it's it's a funny one, Matt. It, it came from a study from the University of Cambridge, and what they found is this, this concept called the Jevons paradox. And this, in, in, in simple terms, means an energy rebound. So let's take a simple example. Let's say that you... Uh, insulate your house, right? Which, of course, by the way, is a good idea. What they find is that after maybe four years of uh, a home being insulated, that the amount of energy that is being used, the number of kilowatt hours of energy being burned four years later is roughly the same. So you might say, well, what's going on? The first thing is that people tend to turn up the thermostat because they've, they're used to like spending a certain amount of money. Let's say they're spending 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 a year. And essentially, they continue spending that amount of money, except now their house is three or four degrees warmer. Now, lifting people out of energy poverty, this is the key use of insulation. It shouldn't necessarily be that you're going around in your shorts in your home. If you are, your house is probably too, too warm. We have to leave it there. John Gibbons, thank you for joining us. Back with the 6 to 6 after this. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today FM.